0: You will have a situation where it's not just projecting agency onto something inanimate, but something that really does seem to have agency, um, and people will organize around that. I think there will be uh, there will be religious sects that you know have a, a model trained specifically for them, and they go to it for counsel, and they let it uh, decide determine their their ethics.
1: AI, we're talking about it some more. Sam Hammond is the director of social polity at the Niskanen Center and author of the Substack second best. And Zohar Atkins is the Substack rabbi. He hosts the truly fantastic podcast, Meditations with Zohar, writes a philosophy Substack at what is called thinking, and does weekly Torah analysis at Etz Hasadet. Uh, welcome to China Talk, which I guess is turning to AI talk. I'm totally fine with that. Uh, Sam and Zohar.
2: Hey, Jordan. Great to be here.
1: Appreciate the enthusiasm. So uh, at 9 a.m. on December 16th. So, Har, what are the questions we should be asking about?
2: Uh, I come to this question not really as a trend forecaster or somebody who's worried uh, about the future, but really somebody who's interested in anthropology and the opportunity that AI affords us to self-reflect on what makes us different than robots. So as... AI becomes more sophisticated and more capable of passing the Turing test, it reveals the extent to which most of the time our thoughts, feelings, and um, scripts could basically be written by GPT, if not written better uh, by a robot. And I think that that is distressing. Uh, a lot of people have, have sort of taken to this point. Nate Silver said that um, one of the upsides of GPT is sort of that it will reveal how mediocre we are. Um, and, uh, I guess that is a new problem in a way, but it's also an old problem because Plato in the Phaedrus or Socrates in the Phaedrus, um, was worried that writing itself would basically allow human beings to simulate knowledge rather than to actually have it. And I kind of agree. I think that, um, one of the features of technology is that we can, um, pretend to know when in fact we don't. And so, um, asking what it is that we can know that, that. That a computer can't know is probably the most important question right now. When we look at GPT and it gives us a an answer to a question and uh, and, and seems to have knowledge, what does that what does that mean for for us when we when we give similar answers?
1: <laughs> that's a that's a that's a that's a big window for you to jump through.
0: Yeah, um, I tend to agree with the the philosopher and and writer y- Yasha Bach that um, the development of AI is the greatest philosophy project of in human history um, that by constructing an alien mind uh, and this sort of comports with what Sohar said we're we're learning about how our mind works um, and answering fundamental questions in a way that isn't just theoretical like armchair speculation but building actual toy model examples of how our brain works um, and being able to reverse engineer that from the ground up um, and the big open question that I have is, Will this be a centralizing or decentralizing force? Um, I think that the assumption so far has been that it will be centralizing because if you have the, uh, tons of money to build these giant models and lots of big data sets that only large corporations or governments could have, um, you have a persistent advantage. And it definitely seems like there will be always these l- huge models that only mega corporations can can afford to run. But I think what what we're realizing is. Uh, on the edge um, even things that aren't state-of-the-art will quickly diffuse into the public and give ordinary citizens far
1: more capabilities than they ever had in the past Um, so I was like tweeting some random things about random like not particularly generous things about people who were criticizing AI art and um, the sort of amount of vitriol which came back at me was stronger than, like, anything I've ever done in a China context. Um, uh, Zohar, like, what, what is, like, driving, aside from just, like, people being scared of losing their jobs, like, what, what, what are the deeper levels of, of, of fear that uh, um, uh, folks are sort of, you know, coming into
2: existential dread over when, when facing these, uh, uh, these new models? um one of one of the fears, as you mentioned, might just be a practical one of sort of feeling irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, another is probably the psychological fear of just the unknown in general, which which you often have, have with technological shifting and then I think in terms of the specifics of this um this AI turn, maybe um, people are particularly afraid that creativity or what they perceive as creativity is being disrupted, so it's a lot easier to um, again, maybe we have a bias because we we live in sort of um, cosmopolitan-y kind of cities, uh, I'm I'm projecting here. Um, but if, if you live in kind of a, a bluish bubble, so you can look to automation and disruption as happening to other people. Like it's happening to manufacturers in Ohio, for example, um, the Rust Belt. But you don't think that it's coming for you. So I think there's a particular anxiety when it comes for the creative class, which is like, oh, wait a second. What if, um, what if AI makes writing and having thoughts irrelevant, and producing cartoons irrelevant, uh, and it actually is better at making those things irrelevant than, let's say, um, you know, putting together machinery on a to- Toyota assembly line or something like that? Like I think that, um, in a way, is a kind of comeuppance for. Uh, I-, I hate to sound folksy here, but coastal elites. It
0: seems like at least in the near term, AI could have an extremely egalitarian effect on closing these innate differences, innate and environmental differences between um, sort of word cell ability, ability to manipulate language, uh, art, creativity. And those things have really since really forever, but especially in the 20th century, became very important markers of status and meritocracy. Um, And in particular in American culture, where we put such a high value on self expression and authenticity. Um, the fact that somebody with a an accent or with dyslexia or any other uh, th- any other thing that affects their, their writing ability, let's say, is now w- will now be able to um, you know compete and spar with other people by just putting their ideas. You know, they have the same thoughts, they have the same caliber ideas, but have difficulty articulating Articulating them, uh, if they're on the same level playing field, um, it's both amazing for 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 society in that sense, but it will also cause a lot of teeth gnashing. Uh, not just because we're losing creativity per se, but it's who, in particular, is losing their, their uh, position in the in the rank of status in society. I
2: definitely agree that there's a status anxiety thing going on, um, and probably just in terms of basic economic modeling, if you increase the supply of thought pieces. Then you inherently decrease the price um, <laughs> right so but but at the same time, if we disambiguate what a thought piece is, and we say that most thought pieces are mid uh you know midway mid level, whatever, so those are the ones that are going to feel the most pain. I think in a way, this is a, an amazing thing for people who are truly differentiated and truly original, um, and it will create more of a winner take all scenario where those who sort of stand apart from uh learned language modeling and can actually do something that it that doesn't feel like a robot did it will will have uh the ability to sort of create a new niche or something like this. so I saw Mark andreessen tweeted um uh, recently about uh some uh something you know it it's as if g p t wrote this, and I feel like more and more we're gonna have that reaction to actual things that human human beings write. And so then, when you then stumble upon a work of art that you don't feel that, it's going to feel even more wow uh, because of the contrast.
1: It'll be interesting, like, how much un able things, you know, to, to what extent people will like go towards un able things, like, I don't know, live theater um, or, uh, I don't know, like physical paintings or, or, or what have you, just to sort of be, no, like like, be confident that, like, the machine wasn't wasn't you know a hundred percent the the creator behind this sort of stuff
0: yeah but this is going to be a very um you know an interstitial period yeah <laughs> it's going it's going to it's going to be like the two-year window where where there's actually still a gap but you saw the same thing in in um, uh, chess where there was a period where um chess ais were really really good but teams of human and chess players were better than just the ai alone um, and that was a, you know, a wonderful sort of like three year golden year period. And then eventually the AI was just, uh, you know, a thousand ELO points better than Magnus Carlson. Um, and now there's even new, uh, uh, models that will play in the particular style of a particular player. Um, and so just not, so it's not just sort of playing game theory optimal, but, um, uh, capturing some aspect of the style and the and the uniqueness and, and authenticity of, of a player's style. Um, and so we're going to be in for, you know, GPT, ChatGPT isn't the end, it's just the beginning, and that model itself is a small fraction of the size of the full GPT- GPT-3 model, which, which is uh, too big to let everyone on Earth access <laughs> at the same time for free. Um, but GPT-4 comes out early next year, and there are... Uh, other models like Chinchilla that are open source that are uh, doing more or less the same thing, but without any of the filters.
2: Uh, Zohar, we're <laughs> next. I guess I'd be interested to hear Sam's perspective on what he yeah. thinks is new um, with this specific wave of AI versus you know other forms of AI versus just technology in general. And um, I know you've written about the singularity and sort of favorably... Uh, you seem to endorse the thesis, at least in broad strokes. So um, what, is, what does the long-term future hold? How much is determinant? And how much um, can policy or preparation sort of change the way that this can go?
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting. These trends are occurring sort of in parallel with um, with research in neuroscience and computational neurobiology where we're learning more and more about how the brain actually works and seeing and understanding how its architecture is in many, in many ways very analogous to these deep learning reinforcement models. Um, you know, right now, when I introspect on on what I'm doing as I'm speaking, it's not that I'm forming coherent thoughts and then speaking them. It's that you just ask me a question which has prompted me and my brain is retrieving through myriad associations and things that I've already read uh, and gen- sort of auto-generating my response. Um, and in some ways, it, it seems like, you know, what it means to be human is to be in this kind of loop of prompting and <laughs> and responding, um, and that becomes culture. So I think that, you know, Richard Dawkins had this book on uh, Weaving the Rainbow, um, where he argued that, uh, you know, scientific understanding of natural phenomena doesn't remove the beauty of those phenomena. That if you understand that rainbows are just particles of water that refract light in certain ways, um, it, far from removing the beauty of the rainbow, it actually lets you appreciate the rainbow even more. Um, uh, I think this this time could be different um, because there's a, there's a lot of self-deception in human psychology um, that is rooted in us thinking we're more complex than we really are that our motives are different than, than they really are.
2: <laughs> and
0: all those things will be uh, extracted and learned and laid bare. Um, and we'll have to deal. with
2: that. Although if we're really good at self-deception, then they won't be laid bare because <laughs> we'll just find new ways to filter whatever is being said to us and, you know, carry on business as usual. Like evolution was discovered and and some people still insist that the world was created in seven days, literally. So I'm, I guess, uh, more conservative uh, in, in my view that sort of even if the truth comes out, a la the Enlightenment, that many people will find all kinds of reasons to resist it. And I'm putting truth in scare quotes there, but.
0: <laughs> there could be a Balerian jihad. You know, you can't rule it out. And I think it it's already starting to be likely. You know, when Amazon was disrupting book publishers, there was a, a mini version of that. And this is going to be much broader and more horizontal and people will react accordingly. You know, on my blog, I've also been retracing sort of the, the, the development of uh, mutual aid societies in the 1800s and how they how they were disrupted and, and crowded out and, and replaced by large scale systems of social insurance and sort of the, the transition from the classical liberal period to the modern liberal period where we did a lot of nation building and built these high modernist institutions. Um, and if you want to think about AI as in some ways, uh, radically reducing the transaction costs associated with with really almost everything that has intelligence involved um, I think it's worth thinking about the 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 future in terms of almost rolling back or unwinding the era of high modernity where we move back towards a a, a different transaction cost environment where we will ha- we will be able to hy- have hyper localized communities so if you take education as an example the reason we send all our kids to um, these public schools that are like within our commuting zone, and there's uh, one teacher for 30 students. You know, it used to be the case that we had small schoolhouses that were just a a walk away, and, you know, someone's mother was doing the teaching. That became untenable um, with mass production and industrialization and specialization. You know, at some point, that schoolhouse had to break down and became a bigger uh, municipal, you know, municipal uh, school network and that all had to do with sort of adapting to the transaction cost environment that we found ourselves in. Now, if you could have an AI chat, uh, a, a generative AI model that is trained specifically to be the world's best tutor um, and, you know, has an avatar that talks with you and remembers your name and will help you break down problems and through replicated studies can take your SAT score, add a 100 points, you know, what becomes the point of sending everyone to this, the same building to get their education uh, and an imperfect education at that? Um, and so what could happen is you see a, a rapid localization of a lot of these service, services. Um, but, of course, there's still going to be a demand for human interaction, for the human touch component. But then the question is, what what is the pole that people organize around? If they no longer have to just send all their kids to the same crappy public school, maybe they begin forming commun- more intentional communities of like-minded people and you know, organizing around some other purpose or some other function.
1: Let's stay on education for a second. Uh, Zohar, you're an educator of sorts. Um, what do you think this is gonna do to learning?
2: I can't generalize. I mean, it's gonna do so many different things, but so as a teacher, let's say, of ancient texts and uh, Jewish texts, Um, and canonical humanistic texts, I think it's, on the whole, a a major boon and a positive thing uh, because the ability to search uh, through tremendous amounts of data will allow us to find patterns that are really there that we wouldn't have found otherwise. And yet, in contrast to chess, which kind of has a specific goal and a specific definition of winning, um, when you're engaged in interpretation, there's a lot more freedom to do things with those patterns that are human so i think ai will be a great servant and do all the drudge work uh basically a, that a research assistant would do but then will allow us to come up with more original uh interpretations based upon that that data search and and i mean we've we've already had search technology for a while but i think as sam was saying the transaction costs will be like close to zero you'll be able to just talk out loud like search for this and what and and what about this you know like show me all the places in uh the Talmud that might reference Plutarch or Seneca or something and like it will pull some things up and that will be amazing and like you know you'll be able to go through all scholarly works and and essentially like skim them based upon what it is that you're looking for so i think it will i mean for people who care about knowledge, it will be amazing in terms of what it will do for credentialism, similar to what we were talking about before with like the the oversupply of thought pieces decreases the the value of them. I think um it will significantly lower the status of pure research and increase the status of interpretation and and this is what Tyler Cowan calls like uh, the ability to crack cultural codes becomes sort of more and more important. Uh, the more that, um, I guess, the 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 rest of our more analytical stuff can be outsourced.
1: But but Zohar, what happens when you know we get past like that that two that nice like two to three year window Sam was talking about, where you know if you just ask, well, when you get to the point where you ask, um, uh, uh, Chat GPT. Tell me something novel, and interesting. No one has ever thought, which is deeply meaningful about this week's Torah <laughs> portion, and it sort of generates like better shit than you can ever sort of
2: conceive of. Okay, I would say if it generates good stuff, that's great. I, I'm a little bit skeptical that it that it will, but if it does, um, and, and we can benefit from it, then we should. Uh, you know, let's let's say that that will. Yeah. Uh, firstly, like. How, I don't think there are that many educators who are like, let's say, making a living as educators because they're saying something new. So, um, may, maybe all it will, all it will reveal sure. is that the, one of the jobs of an educator, especially let's say in the literary or philosophical dimension is to facilitate opportunities to gather around text, almost like a ritual or to be a personal presence in people's lives. And so it will, it will debunk the idea that these people are sort of. Authoritative knowledge holders, and I think that that's fine. Um, but I don't think it will make them completely irrelevant. Maybe they'll just outsource the. Again, I don't think the meaning making can be outsourced, but they'll outsource whatever part of the job, and the premium will be put on it.
1: A- yeah, I, I remember there was some controversy a while ago about like a. I think it was like a priest who like copied his sermons or like d- did the same sermon he did the year before, and it's like, like you're not hiring a priest to like. I mean, like, I guess a little bit, but like, I, like the, I think the bigger value add is like the marriage counseling and like right. being there when your parents die and you know all like like t- teaching your you know setting an example for the community or whatever.
2: Um, have they,
0: did they read Ecclesiastes because there's there's nothing new under the sun?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think I think people expect different things. Yeah. So, so uh, like, I person, I personally would be disappointed. In somebody who's who's telling GPT to write their sermon for them, like, but if they did that as their first draft and then they sort of added to it or they turned it into some kind of conceptual art, I'd be super in favor but like for me i I really don't um want my marriage counselor to be somebody who's doing uh plagiarism because i I find them to be not credible
1: okay, but here's well, the other thing is like wh- what what about when the marriage counselor like when gpt when chat gpt can like download everything about you and your spouse and like be like an all-knowing all-seeing like god tier marriage counselor
0: right i mean it could be the best cognitive behavioral therapist ever created yeah you know um and you know i talked a little bit about trying to roll back the clock and think about how our institutions developed over the last 100 years and how that might start to reverse and you know if things become much more decentralized the other thing that will that will have in common with uh you know more pre-modern societies is magic will be real you know we we the the modern era was this world of um you know what carl sagan called uh you know learning that we're not in a a demon haunted world you know disenchantment We, we we have a firm separation between the spiritual and the concrete the the physical and the mental um and now, you know, in the in the near future, it's going to be uh, that 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 uh, dichotomy will no longer exist. The spiritual and the physical will be united and things that we think of as an- inanimate will be animate. Um, and you could see that having a really profound effect on society. Um, and not everyone will be in perfect epistemic environments. <laughs> um, and so in some ways, I think uh, you could see, you know, a, us, us revert back to a more sort of forager style of, uh, of human relation where we have, you know, interpreters, Cassandra's and, um, uh, and, uh, and for the
2: most part, people are, are just genuinely kind of confused about what's going on. Walter Benjamin's thesis on the philosophy of history that, um, sort of the Jews banned soothsaying as a form of idolatry. Um, and so at least from a strictly monotheistic point of view, like predicting the future is not something that humans should attempt to do. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on the pragmatics of that, but it's an interesting thought. And so the reason why, um, Judaism is so centered on memory, uh, especially about the holiday cycle, remembering the past is because we're not allowed to be forward-looking as sort of in deference to God. Only God knows the future. And, um, I th- I see a consonance in that idea with Plato in his conception of anamnesis, knowledge as recollection. Um, and so I think the point of this is really to say there is knowledge out there in the back of our minds, or if you want to say, put it in the collective conscious, or if you want to say it it's downloaded on hard drives, external hard drives or machines have this knowledge, Where, wherever it is, there's this knowledge out there. But what counts is us appropriating that knowledge and making it ours and so that is what I think the Jews are calling memory and what Plato's calling anamnesis and um, there's always gonna I think there will always be a need for memory the future holds so in that sense like I uh, I see I see AI as not so different from mass culture in general in that um, it's the kind of thing that most people will, use to entertain and to deploy, but not necessarily to remember. And um, if that sounded a little bit abstract, I'll, I'll make it super buzzwordy and and trendy by just saying the words identity politics. Um, I think that <laughs> um, <laughs> as Fukuyama and, and sort of many others have, have weighed in on this, um, especially since 2016, um, identity is not something that's going away. If anything, it's becoming more important and identity according to the greeks is connected to thumas. it's co- connected to the part of ourselves that feels anger and that feels pride and i think that's also connected to memory because it's basically part of our ide- so it's 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 part of our the construction of meaning and the construction of narrative and how we think about our lives in the context of sort of what came before us and what's coming and so i don't actually think that identity is going to be you can't outsource identity questions if, and, and we might become more anxious about our identities, sort of the more that technology allows us to be the same in all kinds of ways. So I guess I, I see more of a dialectical thing happening here, uh, where the more advanced we become, let's say in the rational space, in some weird ways, the more anti-rational or romantic or sort of identity based we, we might become uh, in, in other dimensions. The more the, the, the better AI becomes at, let's say, predictive text, or trend forecasting, or whatever it is, saying this is the optimal move, the more there will be sort of, I think, a backswing to the importance of anamnesis, memory, identity. Again, for better and for worse, I think there'll be healthier and less healthy versions of it. But um...
0: yeah, In general, humans have a very poor intuitive understanding of, of what is easy and what is hard when it comes to our intelligence. Um, you know, we, we we learn to walk when we're like one or two, and Uh, It sort of just happens, you know, we seem to be, you know, what an AI researcher would call call a few-shot learner. You know, we get put into a new environment and um, remarkably quickly we learn a language um, as if we're almost tuned to wait for those environmental cues and then absorb the language really quickly. And meanwhile, you know, multiplying five-digit numbers is difficult, whereas a calculator has been doing that for for, for eons. Um, and so when it comes to memory, you know, one way you can think about these new models is they're, they're, they're all really being driven by this revolution in what are called transformer architectures. And transformers essentially allow the generative AI to have a, a short-term memory uh, and really is a variant of associative memory. Um, so what these models are actually doing and why they've had this sort of step function increase in, in ability is because they are uh, building memory um and like i said earlier like when my 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 personal experience of of writing or talking really does sometimes feel like i am just like the thoughts are coming from the ether or from the void and i don't know where they're coming from but they really seem to be based on this accumulated associative memory uh that i've that i've built up through weeks and months of reading or whatever um and you see this already in some of the the early use cases that people are are playing with you know, training, uh, training a, a model on uh, the works of uh, of a deceased person, and building a, a version of a chatbot that will speak like that person and will have will will uh, have their memories, and sort of building a, a simulacrum of somebody who's passed away, but uh, in some ways memorializes them. Zohar, is that
2: is that cool? Um, it, for for me personally, it, it, there are use cases. Um, that are really cool in that area. And there are use cases where I feel like they're superficial. So I guess, you know, like a lot of things, there's high variance. Um, I I personally would would love a chatbot that let's say simulated uh Heidegger or uh Psalms or Confucius. Like I would I would benefit a lot from something like that. Um, especially if you could sort of train it to have uh to, to, com- to combine its sort of understanding of the world, in scare quotes, with a specific t- topic that you're asking it about. So I think like a crossover effect would be interesting of like, you could ask Heidegger to weigh in on uh, something that didn't exist in his lifetime. Like, you know, tell me about the internet or something like that. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I do go back to Plato on this. It's, sorry to sound like a a... a sort of broken drum here and GPT could totally make a mockery of me on this. But um, in the Phaedrus, uh, Socrates contrasts um, his own type of speaking with that of one of his interlocutors, Lysias. And he basically says that with Lysias, um, it doesn't really matter where you begin and end. It's kind of like you could cut up his text and rearrange it and it would have the same meaning. And that's bad because... It means that there's sort of no um, to the the way that his message is designed. It's sort of like this generic thing. And so if you think of Lysias as kind of like bad AI, um, as mid-level AI, then the the question is like, how do you construct a speech or construct a discourse that doesn't have that staleness? And so, um, yeah, if you can can resurrect the dead, uh, have them not be stale. Like, I think that would be really interesting, but I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not there yet in accepting it. And then my second point would be that even if, even if you could, um, do that, that I think the work would be in assimilating the meaning from that experience and not assuming that it inheres in the machine. Um, that would be kind of lazy. I I think there's a couple,
0: since this is China talk, a couple, um, China angles to talk about this as well um, you know the last time I was on we talked about, uh, Jordan you and I talked about um, American science policy and how it differs from the Chinese approach which is much more much, much more emphasis on applied research and development and you know many of these technologies that are, are driving this AI spring um, are, aren't that new you know there's a lot of subtlety that goes into the architectures but the basic algorithms are, have been around for Fifty years, um, and until you know, until recently, uh, the reason AI progress has been seemingly relatively slow is because to do any kind of research in the area as an academic or as a research scientist, you had to propose some new way of doing machine learning, some incremental improvement. What you couldn't do is say, "Let's take existing models and just throw ten million dollars at them and see if they change, if they if they get really really big." Um, you know that that wasn't how we approached scientific research. And what it turned out is, in this case, more is different. Just simply scaling up uh, un- well-understood architectures create, you know reaches a phase transition where you get qualitatively different results. And I think that has lessons for our broader science and technology policy. Uh, and then the second thing is, you know, China is clearly approaching this very differently and very cautiously. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I tend to think that AI will be quite decentralizing. And destabilizing to any whatever regime, uh, is taking place under. Um, and China doesn't want that to happen, obviously. Um, and so, just this last couple of weeks, they've announced that they're going to be requiring any AI-generated images to be watermarked, um, and are going to be doing other things that make um, make the diffusion of this technology, uh, uh to, doing things to limit the diffusion of this technology and keep it within the hands of the CCP. C- yeah.
1: I mean, it'll be really interesting. I was just thinking like, like I was like it was it was not hard at all for me to get chat GPT to like say, you know, from a CCP perspective, like very politically incorrect things. Um, And, you know, from a Chinese entrepreneur's perspective, if you are putting out uh, a, a large language model and there is a screenshot anywhere of it saying something that's like you know not politically correct like that could mean the end of your company um so it'll be really interesting in the next you know you know we, 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 we've we been speaking on very sort of long horizons for the most of this conversation but just in the next like sort of three to six months is like like the like like clearly OpenAI spent a lot of time and effort trying to sort of herd um the responses uh that its algorithm makes in a way that is not sort of offensive to the sensibilities of you know, mainly, you know, American coastal elites. Um, but uh, that chat, it's like, they can, they can like fail in that. And it's like a tech crunch article. It's not like, oh, like now your company is no longer in existence and you're like facing jail time because you just like created something that like allowed people to like riff about how, you know, she is a terrible leader or, you know, uh tenement or, or what have you. So that sort of like, uh, um, that tension that these there's an aspect of these models which is like really uncontrollable it seems um uh with the need for the chinese government to be able to kind of not let let these sorts of tools um run willy-nilly through um through society it will be a really interesting um one to follow in the coming uh, coming months yeah i think i think it leads to this sort of two-tier
0: weaponization um you know at the very top end Uh, AI will be used in, you know, military applications for autonomous warfare, for billion, you know, the next Stuxnet or whatever. But I think actually the thing that may end up being more destabilizing or more more weaponizable um, will be the ordinary uh, use cases at the edge. Um, You know, if we think about the Internet as an analogy, um, no one would have predicted in in the early 2000s that within a decade we'd be having the Arab Spring and a crisis of authority across Western democracies spurred on by the internet's ability to uh, mobilize people and shed light on political corruption. Um, and, you know, one of the things the U.S. Is, State Department has been doing and, and part of our, you know, part of our soft power is, you know, we'll drop uh, USB sticks into Cuba so people can access the internet and download media and, and see what the world is like. It'll be very difficult to keep uh, foreign actors from dropping you know, cell phones and USB sticks into China that have the latest uh, model that's you know compressed to fit on a on a hard drive, um, and gives any individual the power of a, of you know
1: a thousand or a thousand man army. Yeah, I think two 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 episodes in a row, I've made it to minute thirty seven before China came up. This is uh this is clearly there's something to this.
2: Um, it's so hard. Take us somewhere else. Do you know the story of the Great Wall of China? I don't nope. know it's so well off the top of my head that I necessarily but I, I was I was just thinking about um where where my head was going with with some of the AI as anticipated allegorically in sort of um pre-modern or you know pre pre uh postmodern literature. So like the story of the Tower of Babel would be one example where um if if Sam is right that AI is a decentralizing force, then it seems like uh, in some sense, uh, language technology as a as a chaos agent is divinely prescribed. In other words, that sort of the hu- human desire for unity, uh, for totalitarianism in a way, to organize everybody around the same thoughts and the same opinions and build the same thing is deconstructed in, in Genesis 11. And so, um, you know, there God scatters the languages of everybody, but like maybe we we didn't actually see the fulfillment of this. Scattering until <laughs> until a future moment in, in which AI is 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 actually allowing sort of each person or each local community or uh, to, to to formulate its own prompts and its own uh, generative grammar or something like this. So that that was one direction I was thinking about. And then I don't know um, if you guys have any other sort of examples, stories where you you see you may uh, anticipated. But I, I I guess another one would be. Jolem um, was a scholar, Jewish scholar of mysticism. He was pur- pur- purported to have said that the, um, that the first computer was a golem and that binary code um, is itself a kind mm-hmm. of language mysticism where if you break everything down in the world into ones and zeros, it's a, a kind of akin to the Kabbalistic theory that the world is just created from the Hebrew letters and that if you just know how to manipulate those letters, um, then you can create anything with it, including life. So I don't know your thoughts on any of that weird stuff. But, you know, the medievals were obsessed with alchemy. And um I, I wonder, like, if we're sort of mm-hmm. also losing the magic in the, in the technology as well and not seeing its con- continuity with with pre-modern understandings of, you know, how human beings manipulate their surroundings and then create so- things that are sort of out of their control.
1: So I just read this absolutely masterful, uh, Isaac Newton biography by James Glick. And, um, there was a quote, um, and, you know, for a few hundred years after his death, um, because his papers were, you know, he hid his papers, um, and basically the only sort of, uh, public kind of documentation of him was the Principia Mathematica and all of his sort of physics and astronomy and what have you that he turned into this kind of like enlightenment god of rationality and reason. Um, But in the 20th century, uh, what happened was all these aristocrats uh, who had his papers got really broke and started to have to sell them. And um, Keynes apparently in the 30s was like, I'm going to like buy up a third of them because it's super cheap. And like, he's like the greatest, you know, Englishman to ever live. Um and you know what turned up, of course, was the fact that he was this like heretical um, uh, uh, religious thinker who was incredibly obsessed with alchemy and was just like this just totally like wild dude who was not at all this like temple of reason you know Voltairey thing. Uh, Keynes had this fantastic line that uh, that Newton was actually the last of the magicians. And sort of put the magicians in their grave um by sort of teaching the world how to think uh you know how teaching the world the scientific message and how to use numbers to to uh to explore the world but um still in his head there was all of this you know turn turn mud into gold and and uh this obsession with sort of like like textual analysis of ancient um uh religious texts which Um, is very not like cool from a, you know, 18th or 19th century perspective. Um, So I I, I do think what you sort of what you what you guys were talking about earlier of like the like people looking to other places outside of the AI to find magic is going to be a really interesting thing to explore. And maybe, you know, we'll have. Um, you know, maybe the AI will like come up with the cult, um, but uh, because it will sort of like outcompete any of the human cults that we'll sort of think of, but sort of wanting to um believe in something that's like beyond just your uh, sort of what what the what the ones and zeros can do for you, I think will be um I guess really here's
2: here's a metaphor thing. What you guys think of the metaphor of the wizard and the wand. So like sort of in a um, classical sense, you would you would say that man is the wizard and technology is the wand. Um, does AI specifically change the nature of that metaphor such that it's no longer a wand but a wizard as well? Uh, are we the? Do we become the wand and AI holds us in its hand, um, or does or does AI reveal to us that we're not wizards um, and that we're all wands? in which case, who's the wizard?
0: What is one of the psychological origins of religion? Um, one of one of the theories is that it's, it's you know, downstream of our agent detection system, our brain. You know, our brain uh, is developed to see agency in other human faces um, and to dif- differentiate between a, a tiger and a rock. You know, a tiger has intentions and may come kill you, and a rock is just an inanimate object. Um, and so, you know for that split second when you stub your toe, you are mad at the chair. Um, but the chair is obviously an inanimate object. So we have this propensity to project agency where there isn't any. And so, you know, then you have, you know, Zeus-style myths where, like, what is what is, uh, what is this lightning? Why did this lightning strike and kill my cow? Or, you know, why did these floods wipe out our village? Uh, why did these volcanoes rain hellfire on us? And you read intention into into something that doesn't have um, intention and then you know the the enlightenment and modernity is sort of again separating the the causal layer that sort of there's a, a layer of physical causes and then a layer of human intentions and those two things are separate and if we're moving to a world where those two things mer- merge once again y- you will have a situation where it's not just projecting agency onto something inanimate but something that really does seem to have agency um and people will organize around that. I think there will be, uh, there will be religious sects that, you know, have a, a model trained specifically for them and they go to it for counsel and they let it, uh, decide, determine their, their ethics. Um, you know, Yasha Bach has this reading of, uh, the Genesis creation narrative where he says that, um, it's very speculative, of course, but that it, it's sort of a model for the creation of the human mind. A uh, kind of introspective uh, uh, metaphor for the creation of human mind you know you have this disembodied spirit hovering over the water, and light and darkness begin to separate, and that 's sort of like the emergence of contrast and then you begin to uh, be able to differentiate objects in the world, the animals and the plants and that 's like object classification <laughs> and steadily you build up um, <laughs> you build up the kind of um, developmental process of human cognition. Uh, as captured in a, a pre-modern understanding and
2: introspective analogy. I buy that. So just extending it, though, a little bit, um, and this goes back to the identity politics point. So um, once you have a sense of self, which is a pretty like significant cognitive achievement, um, you often have that sense of self in relationship to other people. Um, you compare yourself to other people. You envy other people. You fear other people. And it's not just for survival. It's also this sort of existentialist thing that Sartre and Hegel and all these people talk about, which is basically recognition. You seek to be recognized. And in Hegel's master slave story, you know, the the primal, the primitive forms of recognition took, took the form of kind of like uh, matches to the death. And then the second form of that would be, you know, slavery. And then sort of eventually we get to liberal democracy where we found a way to sort of Mediate and regulate these struggles and sort of um, feel equal to one another because we we have an aspect of ourselves that that's superior and an aspect of ourselves that's inferior and so you know beautifully we 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 harmonize this master slave dialectic in ourselves. Um, I guess the question would be, um, does AI seek recognition? What would it mean for us to feel that it does, um, and what would it mean for us to seek recognition from AI? And how will that sort of wrinkle the current uh, the the current regime in which we typically you know for example seek recognition from our peers, um, but we define that the circle of peers like pretty narrowly. So it'll be either sort of people in your neighborhood or people in your country or maybe all human beings. But like most people aren't let's say. Um, comparing themselves to animals or comparing themselves to gods, um, I will say as one caveat to that, that Nietzsche, his most one of his most biting critiques of theology wasn't that God didn't exist. It was if God exists, how can I bear not to be him? So he thought the the the, the problem with God is that it, it creates envy, as there's we postulate a superior being and then sort of demote ourselves relative it relative to it. So the whole point of the Overman is that he's not going to be limited by the concept of god he's going to seek to be an equal to god age for ai play these days um right and and some of that is because you know peter Thiel was a student of his and invested in facebook on on kind of a girardian theory of mimesis so i'd be curious to know like as ai gets more advanced do we think that ai will itself become mimetic and rivalrous um and is that a precondition let's say for it becoming AGI for it becoming kind of so advanced that it becomes a threat to us, or would it be a threat regardless of whether it has this sort of.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think the big difference between AI and, and humans currently is that humans are, are agents, you know, we, in the, in the Kantian sense, we have, you know, unity of perception and, um, we have this unified sense of self where all our different modules are visual cortex or audio and, and, uh, reasoning abilities or our body model, like these all all get aggregated up into one unified sense of self. Um, and right now what, the, what AIs are doing is they're very disembodied. Um, you know, the, these generative uh, models for text, are, it's sort of like you just plucked out somebody, you lobotomized somebody's language faculty and, and they have nothing else but that. Um, and now people are starting to build tools where, you know, it maybe has access to a longer term memory or is able to call Python to do some math or... Or search the internet uh, to find an answer, um, and so pe- people will steadily over the next decade build things that look more and more agent-like because they're going to be basically doing Lego blocks of all these different models. And you know, our our own brain is hyper modular. Ha- it's not just this homogeneous lump of neurons. There's tons of structure in the brain, and we will we will um, begin to parallel that structure. The question is, what happens when you close the loop and build something that is you know real time? You know, um, is getting constant feedback and has a sense of uh, ha- has a sense of recurrent agency. Um, and then I think that's when the Hegelian dialectic kind of kicks in, and you start to ask, you know, for Hegel, it's it's this idea that everybody um, that reason sort of presupposes autonomy, and that if um, you know if you and I are having a conversation and we're we're appealing to reasons for things rather than just my might makes right, um, that this un, 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 reveals a, a deeper metaphysical autonomy that you have. And the question is, will we tell the AI what to do and use might makes right? Or if we reason with it, will we come to imbue it with autonomy? And I think that may be the biggest AI safety risk. How is that a safety risk? Uh, because there will be movements to for AI civil rights and, um, and, and any chance of Keeping it in its box will will go
2: well. Who do you think? um, Just forget China for a second and just bring it back to like Western countries. Like who do you who do you like? Who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? Like who do you think AI poses a bigger um, risk to the political left or the political right? And I you see this already. Let's say with like Amazon, for example, that you have right wing populists who are like sort of upset that. Um, they, they think tech has a, a left-wing bias and then you see like left-wing arguments that sort of it's big business or, you know, too capitalist or I, I, any number of things. So I'd be curious to know like um, in this scenario in which um, AI has civil rights, who's going to be leading that movement? Who's going to be opposing it? And like is this going to create a realignment in politics or is it just piggy- going to piggyback off of an already sort of emerging realignment? I
0: think that that's almost – like asking in the eighteen hundred late eighteen hundreds, um, you know, if electrification and the steam engine <laughs> and so forth would that benefit the people who were in favor of a, the silver and gold standard or people who preferred bimetallism, you know? <laughs> those were like the big debates at the time. Yeah. And uh and it's like people don't even remember those debates. Um you know, in some ways you could say that, that those developments benefited The progressive left because the early progressive movement was about you know regulating these large monopolies and uh you know bringing common carrier laws to 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 the to to rail networks and stuff like that um and so you know taking that as my launching point you know if if i'm right that this will be decentralizing i think it will be empowering to more libertarian narratives about um, about state power um And this is why in my piece, I I talk a lot about sort of, you know, getting our leaders ahead of the curve. We we have a first mover advantage and there's going to be a lot of laws that will need to be changed. Um, And if you look at a country like Estonia that has the most developed, you know, e-government in the world where everything is done on a kind of blockchain, it's totally cryptographically secure, you pay your taxes, you get your benefits, you do everything um, through the system that is fortified against, you know, foreign threat. You know, they built this system because uh, Russia is their neighbor and they need it to guard against espionage. Um, the U.S. system is, you know, to call it outdated is an understatement. You know, our IRS is written in, in, in assembly language. You know, our, our unemployment insurance system is collapsing. Um, and so there's going to be a lot more weak, weak points, a lot more areas to exploit um, U.S. institutions. And that's another reason why I think in the U.S. context, and like maybe maybe in China, in the U.S. context, it trends towards decentralizing, um, because China is is trying to get ahead of this curve, and sort of direct the energy from AI in the same way that these fusion reactors are directing the, the plasma energy. You know, they're trying to build gigantic uh, magnets around their society to to keep this thing uh, laser focused, um, and I think that requires a lot of state capacity at the U.S the U.S. and most other countries don't have.
1: I wanted to close on perhaps the most old school intellectual endeavor in history, um, which I've been engaging in thanks to Zohar's nudging um, over the past few months, which is reading
2: Genesis. Why should people do this, Zohar? That's uh, I have so many answers to that one. So let me give the instrumental argument you need to understand the texts that have formed the imagination over centuries and millennia and the book of genesis and the bible more generally is one of the most influential books and to not know it is to not know yourself and to not know the context in which you live um i think another um that would be like a kind of historicist argument for doing this which is just like i don't know it's um, it's important to, to to study science because you want to understand the composition of how things work. But history is also compositional. It's compositional or the organ. And to understand culture, you need to understand the sources of culture. So that would be like maybe my first analytical type argument. But I think in terms of why I do it, it's not just for that. Psychology, if you want to understand conflict if you want to understand because it's super old and old things that have stood the test of time are mad and healthy. Sam gave a reading of Genesis um, that these are just projections or whatever, but I think the text really is archetypal. It really is um, inexhaustible. And so we continue to come up with new ways of reading it in light of, let's say, the latest discoveries in science or history or psychology or whatever it is. And they seem to fit. And like that's pretty remarkable be- putting something on it.
0: you know I called my piece before the flood, right and these you know the antediluvian archetype is something that is you know relevant to uh, you know society living in the Tigris and Euphrates water plain, and it's also relevant to us <laughs> you know these these are very recurring um, dynamics, and I think they' they are embodied in uh, ancient texts, and I think the the reason the consciousness interpretation of Genesis is so compelling is, you know, if you think about these, these peoples that, you know, they're living in a pre-modern early agricultural society, Um, you know, for them, creation wasn't the creation of the earth or the creation of the world per se, you know, they didn't understand like star formation or the big bang, you know, for them, it was really like, you know, the beginning of Skyrim where, you know, your eyes open up and the, the scene fades in and suddenly you're just on horseback somewhere. Right. Um, and so there's a, a deep connection between the creation of the world and our creation of the world uh, through our cognition yeah it's funny to bring up Kant because Kant was in some ways the first AI researcher um, you know he he understood that there are these a priori kinds of knowledge that uh, pre-structure the world the conditions of possibility we don't we don't we're not just pure humans that enter the world and have a bunch of sense data hit our, hit our eyeballs and then and then uh, understand how to move about we have like a, a pre- existing understanding of causal and spatial structure of uh, different sort of concept-laden things that we've imposed onto the world. Um, and he he understood that just through an introspection. And then maybe, you know, you'd say Frege was like the first computer scientist. And so I, I think this has been the, you know, I, I kicked off by saying AI is sort of uh, both the technology and the, the ultimate philosophy program. And it's really fulfilling something that began, you know, you could say it begins in Genesis, um, and then goes exponential post Kant, and here we are. Uh, but to your point about um, you know these these things being recreated at the civilizational scale, you know I think about the work of Joe Henrich, the um, evolutionary anthropologist. Um, you know, he has done a lot of work on the development of monotheism, and he traces it to you know the the move from the polytheistic and mystical and gnostic sort of eras to an animistic to to monotheism is the development of centralized governments. And huh. the, the big God hypothesis is that big gods track big states. Uh, and, and, and the way you can think about that is, you know, if human minds, the, this tele- teleological sense that we have of agency, if all we are in the end is like a deep learning algorithm with like a, a control system, with like a set point. You know, societies have their own set points and their own control systems. And while it's, it's not the case that society is literally conscious in the way human is, you begin to it, it gives more credence to making those kinds of analogies between like the spirit in our body and the spirit in, in, in society. They're different kinds of spirits, but they are both uh, they're both essentially kinds of control systems. I, I I write a lot about Mormonism on my blog. I'm not a Mormon, um, but the reason I write about it is because it's it's um Really, the the last big modern religion, unless you count like Scientology or some random New Age stuff. Um, and moreover, it, it emerged in the Industrial Revolution, um, with the knowledge that you know there are other planets. That you know the the world is is post scientific revolution. And so, their theology is really interesting because it, it's in some ways super materialistic, right? Um, when the Mormon when the Mormon missionaries went to, to Copenhagen in the eighteen fifties. Uh, Kierkegaard wrote in his journal that uh, you know after talking with them that uh, he thought it was a, a retrograde step in theology uh, from the spiritual to the concrete because uh, rather than God being omnipresent, the Mormons told him that he moved with rapidity from star to star, and he said that he thought that this was inspired by the telegraph. Um, and you read you know some Mormon sci-fi. I'm a big fan of Orson Scott Card. Um, you know there's a, a real there's a real understanding that like. There's laws of special relativity that constrain your ability to move through the universe. Uh, you can only go as fast as light and no faster. Um, and so it's, a, it's something that I'm, I'm reading more into because it's, um, it's a way of uniting the spiritual and the concrete that I think is going to become increasingly relevant uh, as we realize that you know, there is this spiritual dimension to the world, um, but it's not limitless or unbound. It's not, um, it's not separate from the causal structure of the universe. It is a software layer on that structure. Um.
1: Yeah. I mean, this may be the the biggest brain China talk show we have until Chat GPT makes me ten times smarter than I already am and able to keep pace with uh, with the likes of Zohar and Sam. Thank you so much for being a part of uh, China Talk. You too.
3: En tu ciudad, preguntando, ¿a if this is apocalypse, and first there was a genesis, I think I'll let myself exist under this bloody moon. I'm Butterfly. Butterfly I'm the queen to my demise But don't think that I'll go miss. I'm just getting my groove But first I gotta let go of the things I tried to be First I gotta let go of these figures next to me First I gotta give up everything I can't control Get that modulation in my system and move on to the next On to the next On to the next On to the next